social media is great for meeting people you might not otherwise have connected with. Kalwinder Singh Dinsa is one of these people. Having lost his father to suicide, one of his keys to recovering and making sense of the world around him was writing, cricket poetry included. In this episode of the podcast, we spoke about this and believe me, his positivity is infectious. Just in a second. Okay, uh, joining me today is uh, Calvinder, who came to my attention for a couple of reasons, and we're going to talk about uh, both of them in this uh, this podcast episode. So, first of all, hello. Hello, nice to meet you. Yeah, likewise. Um, now, on Twitter, that great, uh, that great venue for sharing of ideas and, and, and really nice stuff, something really struck me recently when I saw uh, a tweet from yourself offering to help touch up and sharpen the look of photos for, for people who had an image of, of someone that they'd been um, bereaved to by suicide. Um, just explain to me what, what prompted you to do that. Well, um, 14 years ago, my own father, Mahinder Singh Dinsa, uh, died by suicide. And obviously, ever since then, I've tried to come to terms with his death. And I feel that I am now at a point in my life that I've come to terms with his death and I'm able to talk about his death and share my experiences. And uh, so what happened in relation to that tweet was I found this app uh, a couple of weeks ago and I was using that app to touch up uh, hero, great heroes of mine from the past, mainly football players. And I also managed to do the odd family member. And then I stumbled across one picture of myself and my father during a happy moment in our life. And the, the photo itself was quite fuzzy, a bit blurry. So I decided to put it through this software. And when it came out, I was so overjoyed because I saw my father again for the first time in a long time, laughing and smiling back at me. And it overwhelmed me with a great feeling of joy. And then I carried on with my uh, sharpening up of photos for friends and family and footballers from the past. And then one day on Twitter, I saw a, a photo that a father had posted of his daughter saying, this is my daughter and, you know, I really miss her. And I saw the photo and it looked a bit blurry to me. So I put it through my software, pulled it out. And immediately, his daughter's face emerged with a smile. And it made me smile. So I sent it back to this person. And I said, look, I hope you don't mind, but I've sharpened up the image for you. And that person replied with a smile and said, you know, thank you very much. I'm very appreciative of that. And then that made me think, you know what? I've got this tool here where I can help people. And I know how it made me feel, and I know how it can make others feel. I, With my software that I'm using, I can use it to help other people. So I put out that tweet. I was in a few days. It was being retweeted hundreds and hundreds of times, liked, retweeted. And every now and again, somebody would jump on that tweet and say, can you do this for me? And I would. And it made me so happy um, reclaiming these lost lives and these lost smiles. Obviously, I had a lot of messages in my uh, private messages as well and I managed to uh, sharpen up the vast majority of those photos and I was getting replies from people saying look this is my brother he died by suicide I've, this is the only picture I've got of him smiling so 
I'd sharpen it up, send it back, and they would come back to me saying, wow, my mother's just seen this, and she's so happy. It, you know, it raised a, a tear. It, it brought a tear to her eye. And that made me feel so good because, yeah, they might be crying. I might, make, I might have made people cry, but these were tears of joy. So I've just continued doing that. And it's something that just came to me, and I thought, this is a nice thing to do. I'm not offering... Uh, it as a service to get paid I'm doing it for free and you know I don't want to take advantage of anyone but I just want to make people happy and raise a smile because when people die by suicide so often these are actually good people that have died by suicide and it's so sad that because they've died by suicide they almost tend to be forgotten because people don't want to talk about them anymore because it's too sad to talk about or other people just don't know how to um, bring up the subject and these people get forgotten about and it's not fair so this was my way of saying to people, if you've experienced suicide in your life and you've been bereaved by suicide, try and reclaim their memory, a picture, a lost smile, and um, make yourself happy and make yourself more comfortable sharing their story with others. Mm. Oh, I think it's, it's, it's lovely. And when I saw it, it, it really made me think, like you've said, about the very unique impact of suicide as a as a death and how it can impact people's ways of remembering the person that's gone and I know from my experience having lost a a, a friend to it that I've all I've struggled quite a bit over the years to try and work out how it is that I would re- recall memories and and often even if you do mention things in a in a positive way and in a happy recollection you can see sometimes people then processing it and thinking that might be happy, but I don't want to think about what happened at the end because it's so uncomfortable. Yeah. In in your your experience here, having having lost your dad and and having had this time where you say now you you've been able to come to terms with it, um, what do you think we can do a bit more to to try and get people to to not be frightened by by remembering people in this way? I think, to be honest, the greatest thing we can do is talk to people about things like this. Talk to things that are on your mind. Talk to people about these folk that have passed away because you never know by talking, by engaging. You might just help someone else. Suicide stops people from talking. It stopped my father from talking. It nearly stopped me from talking for many years. But, you know, at first it almost destroyed me. Then it, well, it defined me first. Then it almost destroyed me. But then I've allowed it to strengthen me because I'm not, I'm not concerned anymore about what people think of me or, or, you know, what I do. Because at the end of the day, when I talk about suicide, I'm trying to help people come to terms with it a lot faster than I did. It took me about eight years to come, finally come to terms with my father's death for me to be able to move on. Uh, for a long time, I knew he was he had a mental illness, let's say, that had uh, led him to do what he did. But it was only after the death of Robin Williams and the fallout in relation to his death, that he had dementia-like symptoms, Parkinson's, Lewy bodies, and all this, that I finally came to terms with it. Robin Williams, like my father, had a mental illness that had corrupted both their minds, which led them to do what they did. So there was no longer any feeling of guilt or selfishness on their behalf. It was, hold on, this person died because their mind was corrupted by an illness. That's why they did what they did. They didn't do it in a when they were thinking with the same mind. They did it when their mind was temporarily corrupted. That's what led to it. And as soon as I accepted that it was a mental illness that had led to their death, 
I was able to move on with my life. And I'm just, what I'm doing now with my writing, my poetry, and what I do on Twitter and whatnot, I just, I just try and help people come to terms with their loved one's death by suicide a lot quicker than I ever did. By doing that, I'm hoping they then have more of their life to live in happiness rather than being constantly weighed down by this sadness and not wanting to speak about it and, you know, almost forgetting the loved one that they had lost. Mm. And that approach is so important. I found not through my not just from my own experience, but through speaking to so many people over the years that the question that they'll often be asking themselves and, and tormenting themselves with it is that that one of why. And yeah. what you have said there goes a, a long way to being able to to provide some kind of of clarity within that. Um, how difficult? I know this is a, a a ridiculous question, but how difficult was it? before you were able to deal with it and, and, and get through it? When you were in that time in your life where you, you hadn't found a way to, to come to peace yeah. with it, what did that do to you? Well, in terms of the difficulty, it put a lot of strain in my family life, my social life, my work life. What I mean by that is when you, when you have a loved one who has died by suicide in such a manner, that thought is constantly in the back of your mind. What if? What if I'd done this? What if I'd done that? Um, did he not love us? Why did he do it? Why Why this? Why that? There's questions that are constantly in your mind that you'll never get an answer for. I, for a long time, thought I'd never find out why my dad would have done what he did because my dad would never come back to tell me why he did what he did. So that question was constantly on my mind. And it led to a lot of darkness in my life, Depression of sorts, you could say, and it affected my demeanour. I I was a teacher, you see, and at school, yeah, it's great to be distracted by the kids and all that when they're doing their thing, and it's great to be distracted by science and telling stories, but in the back of your mind, when you've constantly got that question in the back of your mind and that thought and those experiences and those ideas about suicide and... It's a bit weird, but I was constantly thinking about suicide all the time. I'm not saying I was constantly thinking about me wanting to take my life, but I was constantly thinking about what happened to my dad and others. So you look around and you think, that's, uh, you, you look at the ceiling and you think, you know, you could hang yourself off there or something like that. Weird, crazy thoughts like that just kept coming into my mind. And I, I just realized from that point on, I've got to distract myself with more positive things and and that's where my writing came into play. That's where me sharing stories about my heroes and my legends of the past came into play because I was able to distract myself and latch my positivity onto these stories of hope and uh, absolute defiance. So that's where cricket comes along. Yeah. Now with this, um, again, the kind of the, the second thing that really interested me was the was your your writing and your your poetry. So you say that that was in part something to, to distract you, to help you to, to move on and to, and to find yourself a little bit more. For anyone listening, in terms of when we think of poetry, how did you make the jump to start doing that? Because for me, I'm someone who, who, who does a bit of writing for, for, for a living, but poetry is something that I'd be a little bit cautious of because I think, well, how do I do it? Am I going to express myself in the right way? How did you start that off? I've explained all this in my my story that I wrote for my dad. It's called My Father, 
and the lost legend of Pear Tree, and it was told over two parts. So, not long after my dad died, I didn't talk to anyone. I couldn't talk to anyone. I didn't know what to say. I didn't want to use the word suicide, commit suicide, because it sounds criminal. And back in, before 1961, it was a criminal act to commit suicide. So it's very difficult to talk to anyone. So I ended up just writing notes at first on my little PDA, just little notes, getting things off my chest. Then gradually, this idea came to me that I wanted to, I wanted to share the story of this local legend who was a footballer that lived on my street. And I wanted to also share my father's story, but I knew that, Nobody would want to just read my father's story. It's too depressing and so on. And then it came together that I'm going to bring them both together and I'll share both their stories, my father and the lost legend of Pear Tree. So in the process from 2006 to about 2016, I was writing in the background, constantly developing my story, trying to get to a point where I could finish it on a high. So I was always writing and gradually I was beginning to release my chapters via blog form and eventually I was able to release the first part of my story in I think it was 2016 and then two years later, 2018 or so, I was able to release part two. And then where poetry came into it was that as I was writing my story, I had all these ideas about things I hadn't put in the book about my famous heroes from the past. And in part one of my book, I think, I already mentioned Ian Botham and his Headingley Heroics. I had already mentioned that test, I think it was in Edgbaston in 2005. It was actually on my wedding day when Mike, uh, Michael Vaughan's men came back from the abyss to beat the Australians. I think it was Edgbaston. And so I was already mentioning cricket. And after I'd released my two parts to my story, um, I went walking a lot and as I walked around the streets of Derby little over a lot I used to think about things in my mind and the constant pacing about got ideas uh, rolling in my mind so I'd write something down on my mobile and then I'd take it home and then I'd write some poetry and at, in the beginning my first collection uh, Pear Tree Rambler I wrote about my heroes and I wanted to do a bit more on uh, Ian Botham and Headingley because in part one of my book, I think it was, I wrote about an, uh, uh, an experience I had at Pear Tree Junior School when I was about eight or nine, and uh, it must have been about 1989 or something, 88, and Bosom was in the papers, and he'd got himself in trouble in Australia. He was on a plane, and they said he had uh, assaulted a passenger by putting his hands on that passenger, and he got arrested. So my headmaster, my deputy headmaster in assembly decided to make uh, an example of Bosom, saying, Bosom, he's a buffoon. He thinks he's a big I am. He thinks he's just because he's done this and that. He thinks he's, you know, better than any, everyone. And I was looking around, sitting, thinking, Bosom's my hero. And although I was only about one or two in 81, as the years went on, the legend of Bosom, you know, everyone knew about Bosom and his heroics. So I was looking around thinking, no one's defending Bosom. He's my hero. He's a good chap. So, but I let it go. What can you do? I've only eight. No one's going to say, you know, no one's going to defend me. And then gradually, as the years went on, Bosom kept cropping up in the news, he kept popping up with his leukemia walks. And all he did for charity to raise a profile in relation to beating leukemia. And I thought, you know what? I was right. Bosom was my hero on the cricket field, on the playground. And uh, I didn't lose hope in him. And in Head, at Headingley, 1981, it wasn't just Bosom, it was others, as I reflect in the poem. But Bowen was the epitome of defiance, 
Then he came onto the pitch. England, it was game over, and nobody expected anything. 500 to 1 and all that. And Bosun defied them all. And that, that to me, is the epitome of hope, especially for someone like me or people like me when they get down and they think, you know, what's going to what's gonna perk me up? I know what's going to perk me up. I'm going to think about Ian Bosom and Headingley. I'm going to think about his 149 not out or whatever it was and all those wickets. And then Bob Willis and Dilly and Gatton and all them that, you know, came together as one to turn the tide and beat the Australians. So that first poem of mine in Pear Tree Rambler was uh, to honour the spirit of Headingley of 81 and uh, to show that, you know, when bad things happen, they're not always going to remain bad. You can turn it around, but you have to have hope. So off the back of the Boson poem came... Um, so the Boson poem is actually called Captain Captain Slog. Uh, a bit of a joke on Captain's Log, as in Star Trek. So after Boson came... I wanted to write a poem about my fellow Punjabian Sikh, Monty Panasar. And one of the great, another great cricketing moment is when Monty Panasar and Jimmy Anderson again defied the Aussies at the Swalik Arena in Cardiff. How nobody expected them to hold out. And a victorious stalemate, uh, you know, emerged from that. Well, it's a victory, although it was a draw. But it was an absolute defiance. And I reflected that in my poetry. And again, Devon Malcolm against the South Africans. Devon Malcolm is a Derbyshire cricketer, absolute le legend here in these parts. So I wanted to reflect what he did. I've done something on Stokes and uh, Adil Rashid just uh, recently. And cricket is the perfect epitome of, you know, raising spirits when times are hard and when things go bad. You can't flip it if you just have that belief in yourself. Yeah. So that's why I wrote my cricket poems. <laughs> the sport lends itself to those sweeping tales, doesn't it? Of from one extreme to the other, and 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 the teamwork and everything that goes in between it. From there, um, so as well as the result of the poems, where um, you you tell these these stories of of what's happened, you touched a little bit about um how it how it helps you and how it makes you feel. If anyone was listening and thinking, I'm looking for something to to help my mood, to, to make me feel good. How would you advocate poetry to them? Well, I would say this. When I was at my lowest point, my darkest moment in my life, what helped me the most was reading. I started reading books about my hometown, my home city of Derby. I started going back almost into the past to remember the good times and how things were when I was younger, when my father was younger, when Steve Bloomer, the famous footballer, was younger. And it took me back to a place of happiness. And as I began reading about these um, places, these stories, these events, these famous Derby folk, I realised that a lot of them, although they might be famous now and whatnot, they're, they're exactly the same as those. They've had their... They've had their high moments in life. They've had their dark moments in life. So what I'm saying is poetry helped me in the sense that I was reading about people and I was reflecting what was happening to me. So by reading other people's experiences, you realise that by reading, you are not alone. So even if you can't talk to anyone like me and you are doing now, even if you can't speak to someone physically about what's going on with your life, read books, listen to podcasts, listen to audiobooks because there might be a spark of something there that really 
you know, touches you and you think, I like that, I want to pursue it and I want to be happy. And that's what you have to do. That's what reading and writing allows you to do. So that's what I do with my writing. I just take these little stories, sometimes daft stories, but it doesn't matter. If it raises a smile, if it makes people laugh, if it takes people back to a happier moment in their previous life, uh, in, in their distant life, let's say, then so be it. If it makes you smile, then that's a good thing. And we need to raise these smiles every now and again to realize that, you know what, you might be in a dark moment at this point in your time, but things are not always going to be dark. Things do get better. You just got to believe. You just got to hope. Yeah. Just like Eddingley, nineteen eighty. <laughs> yeah, and hope's it, isn't it? That's the thing. If you've got hope, then it's so powerful to give you that little nugget of being able to continue and just realise that it does get better. Now, I will share links to the um to the poetry alongside this podcast. But would you care to share any with us while we're on the phone? Um. What, cr- uh, cricket poems? If you like, or, or anything that Actually, comes to mind. I'll share, I'll share the one about suicide. Let me try and find it. Um, it's called Mind Your Language. Here it is. It's quite a short one. So this was about me struggling with the words that I need to use when talking to people many years ago. So it's called Mind Your Language. Commit suicide connotes the crime. My father was no criminal. He did not serve time. Please adopt died by instead of commit. Think of the bereaved. It does not befit. Words can be dangerous and damage the mind. Choose them more wisely. It's good to be kind. So that was a poem I put together to try and get people to think about how their words might impact others. So if you are going to talk about suicide, saying commit suicide might actually offend or upset people that have been bereaved by suicide because the act of committing sometimes does connote a crime. Prior to 1961, it was a crime to commit suicide. It no longer is, but sometimes people in the news, in the media, newspapers, they still use the word commit suicide. And sometimes some people, it stops them from talking about suicide because they're not quite sure how to use the word suicide and in what manner and it just stops people from talking about suicide and suicide stops people from talking so i mean obviously some people will have no um problem with the word commit suicide but that's just a poem about someone who has been bereaved by suicide saying look just be careful with your words you never know how they might impact others and um just do your best you know be kind be thoughtful and it is good to engage about engage with these things but you know, bear that in mind. Mm, absolutely. And the more we talk about it, I think my, my view has always been that it's it's a word and it's a topic that is, is hidden away, is shrouded in darkness. And then if people are in a position where they feel like that they're experiencing suicidal ideation or they're in a really, really bad place, because no one talks about it, it reinforces that they think that you must be messed up to be considering it. And if we talk about it more and reflect on those that we've we've loved and cared for that have gone and we can and remember the good times. But also, like you've said throughout all of this conversation, just offering that bit of bit of hope to people in saying if we can talk about something that is the step towards getting better and this this thing not being something which has to define us all the way through. 
Definitely. I uh, totally agree with that. And uh, you allowing me to share my uh, stories and experiences with you is no doubt helping a lot of people out. It helps me, you know, and hopefully someone listening in, someone watching, you'll help them too. And uh, that's all we can do, especially those that have been bereaved by suicide, to keep these stories alive and keep these memories alive and keep raising these smiles and never, never shy away, never, never, you know, be defeated by the stigma of suicide. Yeah. And do you know what? From a topic that from the outside people would look at and think that would be a pretty bleak podcast. We've had plenty of smiles, a few yeah. laughs on this. So I'd really like to thank you for your time. I've, I've taken a lot from this. I'm going to think a lot about what you've said and I will share your the links to your writing on our on our social media and on the podcast so other people can can engage with that as well. Thank you very much. One more cricketing point. Yeah. You may have noticed my moustache, a bit of a Merv Hughes type, David Boone type thing going on. reason I cut it into this shape was that you'd have to be quite silly to go out looking like this. Yeah. So it keeps me in the house, locked down. Yeah. <laughs> so grow moustaches. Yes, definitely. To emulate some of those great cricketers. Both of them, of course, with these tash as well. Yes, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Cheers. Thanks for that. Take care. Thank you very much.